Listeners, this is Costume Station Zero. I'm Bob Mitch, and I'm with my good friend Ron Daniels. Uh, who, Hi. <laughs> and we uh, often uh, go over various uh, Doctor Who minutia and costumes and Eighth Doctor goodness. And today we're going to be talking about that, along with uh, some fun uh, steampunk and uh, other uh, sundry uh, what convention stories, uh, among other things. Sure, among other things, we're going to cover the gamut. So this will be fun. So. Uh, um, I mean, like right now, outside of of Doctor Who, what what else are are you doing beyond the what? Just the Ren Fair stuff, or what? Um, well, let's see. I got dragged back into the Ren Fair thing after a uh, long break. Um, I'm friends with the people that used to own and run the festival close to me here in New Jersey, and one of the nights that uh, I had worked with years and years ago passed away young. He very young guy, mm-hmm. couple of illnesses suddenly gone, leaves behind a widow and a whole bunch of us scratching our heads like, wow. So I started a uh, Facebook page because so many of us found out about his passing much later. Sure. And the Facebook page in short order ended up with over 200 members, all of whom at one point or another had some association with the New Jersey Renaissance Festival and Kingdom. That spurred the original owners to give it one more shot because the fair had been retired for a few years. Now, there's a lot of other festivals, Renaissance festivals that go on around here. I mean, we've got New York Ren Fair. We've got the Southern Jersey Fair. We've got PA Fair. We have two Pirates Fairs that uh, happen in Jersey. We've got a uh, Renaissance Festival that's uh, in rehearsals right now for Bucks County, uh, which is Pennsylvania just over the border, uh, which opens up soon. And so they said, okay, Let's give it one more go. And I got talked into being fight director for that one. So I got a group of semi-experienced and uh, no-experienced people, uh, totaling uh, 15 of us. Mm-hmm. And over the course of four months, uh, every Sunday getting together and practicing, and then getting the general idea on how I wanted to do things, and also getting them used to my style of teaching and direction, we evolved the characters, we wrote the fights, we made sure we transitioned from working in sweats and t-shirts to working in full armor well beforehand because when you're working in a few ounces of clothing, which is sweatpants, sneakers, and t-shirt, your body weight moves a lot differently than when you're wearing a 38-pound chainmail shirt. Uh, When the rest of your armor, including legs and arms protection, as well as throat protection, brings the total mass up to the 50 to 80 pound range. 
yeah, you lean forward and you find yourself leaning forward faster and farther because of the extra weight. We get the, the fights safe and then we get the fights safe again in full gear. Because even though the armor protects you, the whole idea is you want to make it look like you're trying to kill the person opposite you, whereas in truth, that's the last thing you want to do. Right, so it's a big, um, well, like like all stage stuff, it's all an illusion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also, like cosplay, um, all the gear that we use is either made by us or made for us. Uh, the suit of armor that I used this year to portray King Arthur um, is, like I said, 38-pound chainmail shirt, um, stainless steel uh, parts for the plate mail arms and the plate mail legs, whole bunch of leather work. And all of that has to be done by hand because it has to be custom fit to me. It's not like you can go to Walmart and get a suit of armor. Oh, yeah. yeah and with, uh, with cosplay, there are off-the-shelf things that you can get away with, uh, like with my 8 costume. My uh, shirt that I wear uh, as 8 is just a shirt that you'd get at any department store. All I did was turn up the collar and then bend the plastic inside so it has the look of the early period tuxedo shirt that they had him in. Mm-hmm. The There's more collar. accurate shirts out there, but mine, because it's buried underneath the cravat, the vest, and the coat, as well as me wandering around in a frenetic cappuccino-fueled haze, most people miss the detail that the shirt's not 100% accurate. Right. I, I've said this with a lot of um, other uh, cosplayers I've talked to, and that is, at the end of the day, it just comes down to the read. Um, and, uh, you know, accuracy is great if you can swing it and if it means something to you. But, you know, hey, if, it, if the look is there and no one's going to go, hey, that looks like the wrong shade of orange, which, let's face it, you know, there's only so many of us that will do that, uh, then, yeah, it's going to rock and you're going to have a good time. Let's geek eight for a minute. Um, one of the biggest arguments for the Eighth Doctor costume... Up until recently, and you had a hand in driving the last nail in the coffin on this one, was the color of the coat. Because the film was shot through color filters in almost every single scene. Oh, yeah. Almost every scene also was either color washed or color altered. Mm -hmm. It was shot on, let's face it, (laughs) state of the 80s grade materials, even though it was shot in the mid-1990s. And up until a DVD became available, we only had mostly off-air copies to look at, so they were grainy and they were color-bleached as well. So in the scenes where he's in the TARDIS because there's so much amber lighting uh, augmented with blue lighting, the coat looks brown. In some of the scenes, the coat looks bluish. In the only scenes where they actually made use of some natural light... Uh, it was overcast, raining pretty heavily, and they were using supplemental light um, on it, which further bleached the color, which is the uh, the scenes in the parking deck. Mm-hmm. And right. there you've kind of got a hint that, yeah, it's kind of green. <laughs> but, you know, you never really got it solid until, one, a, a certain person, you, cornered uh, the appropriate people, um, Phil Seagal, Paul McGann, said, excuse me, exactly what color is that coat? And both of them said green. And then the real coat shows up um, after a duplicate of it shows up in London, and both of which are green. Mm. Shock. (laughs) 
Well, it was it was a debate for a long time. You're right, and I didn't ask that of Philip Seagal. Well, I did, I guess, later. But um, before that, he had always famously stated at Gallifrey in the '90s that the coat was a heather green. Mm. But I love how we all questioned it because you know it just didn't look that way on screen. It didn't look that way um, a lot in the photos. I mean, it, occasionally it could read that way, but it didn't consistently read that way. And that's why there was all this. Ooh, what is it? And finally, yes, when I did ask McGann in 2010. And he said it, it was like a bottle green, and he was trying to point to some bottle in the room, I guess, that had vanished. Uh, that was, um, that was, uh, yeah, that was eye-opening because uh, at the time I had had my mate, my uh, coat made in black because um, I just assumed it was a black. It, I thought, you know what, going with black, and it, hey, the black looks great. But uh, now that I know that it's green, I, I took the time to make it again in green, and I know you've done the same, and we're all now we're all on the green bandwagon. So at least that is finally put to bed. Yeah, I'm on my version two of the jacket, and I've got version three always evolving in the back of my mind. Version two incorporated every screen capture I could get, and I sat down and had Skype sessions uh, with the seamstress that made it for me. She's in Texas, I'm in Jersey, you know, we're robot dogs are all the rage, and <laughs> we ripped every single screen cap I had apart for as much information as possible. When we were done, was my code 100% accurate to the screen? No, because we had to accommodate for the fact that my build is very different from Paul McGann's, uh, where he is what I'd consider athletically slender. Because of some of my hobbies, I'm actually more of a bodybuilder shape. Mm -hmm. I'm very top heavy so my coat had to be cut to accommodate that so if you put mine on again he'd be swimming in it mm -hmm. also the materials used the silk velvet that was used for the coat itself for the films very expensive material and even though I do enjoy this hobby and I do have a job that pays me decently enough I got a house I got a wife I got a kid I got two cars <laughs> gotta prioritize I gotcha mm -hmm. yeah 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 Plus, I also had to pay for that suit of armor for the Ren Fair this year. Prioritizing but, even amongst your costumes is like choosing your children, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, case in point, I mean, I know that you said this is audio only, but uh, your reaction should help. One of the items I've got here to show you, this is the sword belt that I had made for the festival this year. Lord of the Rings style, where there's a dagger built onto the hilt, both of which can be drawn. But this is all hand leather work. Wow, that's great. Now, because this was part of a much larger order, and I provided certain parts, like the belt buckle here was originally done by a friend of mine years ago. Uh, the sword and dagger uh, have been part of my collection for some time, but all the leather work you see there, that is literally $100 worth of leather. Sure. No, I hate. I know all about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, I was going to say, you're right, it, it, it adds up, and uh, you know you, uh, you don't expect certain things to reach a certain price tag, but if you want it done really well and really right, and it's outside of your skill set, and even if it is in your skill set, it still might cost you uh, a fair penny to learn how to do it, uh, trial and error, and sheer materials. Yeah, yeah. Um, another one that uh, had to be changed between all the screen caps of McGann's costume and uh, what ended up being mine was the lapels. My seamstress could not figure out how to do the attached collar lapel that you see on the actual coat. Mm -hmm. uh, she 
tried multiple times. She sent me several pictures and she said the ones that look right when they're together, when they're put on the coat itself, they don't work. And one of the reasons for that, unfortunately, is my build. Paul McGann is straight chested. Uh, from top down, he's flat front and back. Uh -huh. I'm not. Um, I use a chin-up bar on a regular basis. Uh, I do a lot of other items to keep myself in shape because the sword fighting and the martial arts that I do on the side, if I'm not in shape, I don't enjoy that as much. Oh, sure. Um, one of the side effects is that I should probably start considering doing superhero cosplay at the rate I'm going. Completely, but, yeah, I was going to say. When are you going to do that? When I get up enough confidence to show up somewhere in tights that's not a Renaissance festival. <laughs> 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 but what she ended up having to do, and you've probably seen this on the pictures, uh -huh. is she had to do a split between the collar and the lapel, and she tried to hide it as much as possible, but this is the only way that the front of the coat would sit properly when I wear it. Interesting, yeah. I mean, it, it gives the feel of the coat, but you're right. I, I see I see what you had to do there. Yeah. Now, the back of the coat, thankfully, she got bang on. I mean, even the way the uh, um, the flag down the back split, she nailed that perfectly. One of the other things that we did that isn't part of the original, and you're well aware of this, is on the Eighth Doctor's coat, there's no pockets on the coat anywhere because that's period accurate to the time period of the coat. His pants only may have had uh, side pockets, may not have. The shirt didn't have any pockets. So where the heck is he going to keep everything other than those two tiny little vest pockets? So what I had her do was add a series of hidden pockets all over the inside of the coat and match them to my build. So that way, as I put the coat on, I can put stuff in these pockets, and the way the coat hangs, they vanish. So I'm usually walking around with two or three sonic screwdrivers, opera glasses, my wallet, cell phone, car keys, tons of other stuff, all in the hidden pockets all over the coat. That's really smart, and uh, it's, it, that definitely falls under practical tips for cosplay to uh, definitely be aware of pockets, um, or at least where to keep all those necessary items, both in terms of your cosplay props and in terms of your real-life ID and, and keys and such. I have a I have one or two also hidden pockets in, in my um, frock coat as well, and mostly it's for like the Sonic and you know my ID and stuff. But uh, I, I do know that was a touchy subject because I didn't want it ruining the line of my coat, and that was very smart of you to have it built in to accommodate that so it would vanish and you could still keep the line, but it would serve its function. Yeah, and the truth is you have to work with someone that understands where the places you can hide it in your build are. If you are straight-chested, uh, putting anything down the front of the coat, unless it hides under the line of the lapel and collar, is going to stand out. But underneath the arms on the inside of the coat, a hidden pocket in there, even if it's a pouch pocket, will hide very easily. So it's a matter of tailoring it to where you can get away with it. Now, of course... The people who are solely interested in wearing a replica of the costume so accurate they could swap it out with the original, and I think that's the secret intent some of them wish they could follow through on, you just got to deal with either leaving all your stuff behind or you got to deal with if the costume has that ability or not. Um, an example of how reality affected fantasy is let's look at Batman's utility belt. Mm -hmm. When I was a kid, Batman was still drawn wearing light to medium blue cape and cowl, 
Um, and his utility belt was this flat, wide, yellow belt with these felt-tip pen-sized capsules evenly spaced around it. Now, you could sneak a batarang and maybe a coil of rope underneath the belt in the small of the back, uh-huh. but these capsules really couldn't contain much more than, say, if they had them at the time, laser pointers, yeah. fields of acid, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Maybe a set of skeleton keys if you use them in a simple fashion. Um, look at the way Batman is portrayed now. One of my favorite variations on Batman's entire look is the Arkham Asylum games. The way they not only depicted him close to the traditional costume, but making it have an armor look to it. Mm-hmm. But also, look at the belts, especially the new game, Arkham City. Mm-hmm. Massive tool pouches, big enough to conceal generally just about any piece of equipment if broken down, so it makes sense. And that carries through into the costuming aspect. People that are doing the tradition, traditional Batmans, unless they're hiding a fanny pack uh, behind them underneath the cape, they can't carry too much with them. But the newer costume, because those belt pouches are sizable and functional, car keys, wallet, medicines if you need them, <laughs> yeah. cell phone, you, know, you got room for everything. Yeah, it always helps to have a little ibuprofen on the floor if you get a little headache or your feet start to kind of swell on you or something, right? Or if you were a hotel room partying until 4.30 in the morning with Nick Courtney and a few others. Ah, uh, jealous. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, or right. Or, or if you're hung over, um, <laughs> um, but no, that, no, those are all very, very smart tips. I, I'm sorry. Do you, do you uh, costume Batman or is this just something you've been looking into? Um, it's, it's been on my bucket list for years. Um, I haven't done so because anytime I try and get up the, the time and the money to do something like that, Either something real world comes along, like the last time I seriously looked at this was around the time I became a dad. Ah. <laughs> so that kind of kicked that one down the uh, the block for a while. Sure. Um, and then recently I was considering it again, and then the whole Ren Fair thing came up, and uh, all the fun money that I had put aside for eventually doing something like that went into refurbishing my suit of armor, went into the new gear, like the sword belt uh, that I just mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Um, and there went that budget again. So again, back to prioritizing with real life. Uh, so what attracted you in general to the, the hobby of costuming or cosplay as we call it now? A, uh, a couple of things. I, the, the main thing that got me started was... Um, I was born in 1970. Star Wars came out a few weeks before my seventh birthday. I went to see it multiple times because this was back in the day when repeated films on TV were not all that close to the, uh, to the release dates in the theater. Uh, VCRs had only started coming out. Um, you know, All the rest of it, even cable TV, hadn't been around yet. So if you wanted to really enjoy a movie multiple times you had to go see that movie in the theaters multiple times uh, I, the, I was yeah. gonna say the kids don't know how good they have it today oh, i'm just wondering what additional things i'm gonna have to explain to my son boy when i was your age i had to go throughout it no <laughs> uphill both ways snow bare feet thankful net nah. so 
I had gone to see Star Wars with my mom multiple times. I had gone to see Star Wars with my friends and their parents multiple times. My grandparents had taken me to see Star Wars multiple times. Before Star Wars had finished its first run, I had probably seen it a dozen times. Because, mm -hmm. well, it's that kind of film, especially when you're about to turn seven years old. Oh, sure. And then the next Halloween came around, and I had the toy Han Solo blaster, which was scaled down to be almost the right size for a seven-year-old. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, my mom said, okay, what do you want to be for Halloween? And she was going to talk me into being a cowboy. I have no idea why. And I just insisted I want to be Han Solo. So she oh. helped me put together the costume which um, we went out, we bought a white pullover that looked about right. Uh, she made me the black vest. I already had the, uh, the right kind of pants for it, even though they didn't have the Corellian blood stripe on them. Uh -oh. um, and we slapped together a uh, simulacrum of the, uh, the gun belt, even though it wasn't even remotely accurate by current standards, but we're going on memory back in those days, you know? Sure. Um, there wasn't screen grabs. There wasn't the internet forums. You didn't have the same research tools. There were action figures, and the action figures were usually dumbed down in their details so that way they could be manufactured easier because they didn't have the computer-controlled manufacturing systems that we have now where the minute details are easy to achieve. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just looking at it back then, all we saw was a strap across, a strap down in the holster. So we get together my hand Solo costume, and I went out trick-or-treating with one set of friends, and then they went home, and I went home and had dinner and asked if I could go trick-or-treating again. I went out trick-or-treating again with the older kids who were allowed to be out late. And then when they were done, I went in and told my mom, Mom, I missed part of our neighborhood. Can we go out again? Uh-oh. And so we went out, and I'm shivering, because this was a cold Halloween in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And I realized, even back then, that the reason why I didn't want it to stop is because I loved being that close to the character of Han Solo. I was dressed like him. I was walking like him in my boots. I had the blaster on my hip. So it was an association thing. I, you know, People that are in the metaphysical stuff would say that I was channeling the essence of Han Solo. No, I was a seven-year-old dressed up as Han Solo, okay? And... <laughs> It's a memory that I carried with me even to high school. I remember in high school at a Halloween party where we're all dressed up as different things. And um, we were talking about stuff that we had done. And I said, you know, when I was seven. <laughs> <laughs> and then as a teenager, I realized why I had enjoyed that so much. Then after high school, I got involved with... Actually, I'm getting ahead. During high school, right after I got my driver's license, I was playing one of the earliest incarnations of laser tech, a game called Photon. Now, this uh, was about yeah, the time yeah. that I had also been um, going to the creation conventions in New York, and I had already gone dressed up in my TOS red shirt for one, um, because I also wanted to show off my early props collection. I had several Richard Coyle props. I still have his analog phaser in my collection after all these years. And um, I had done the, uh, the, the TOS movie costume. And here I am working for Photon, and they wanted me to work one weekend, um, even though they were overstaffed. I said, you know what? I originally wanted to go to this sci-fi convention up in New York. How about I do this? Um, I'll put on my Photon uniform jumpsuit. 
I'll take one of the uh, we used to call the uh, the helmet chest pod belt and gun assemblies pods. I'll take a demo pod and two battery belts with me, and I'll go to the con. I'll stuff flyers for our photon over in Kenilworth in all my pockets, and unless they kick me out for uh, soliciting something that isn't exhibited there, I'll hand out flyers to anyone that asks. Okay. So the manager said, you know what? If this gets us more business, fine. So they even had me on the payroll while I was at the convention. Hmm. So here I am, you know, kind of illegally soliciting um, for uh, Photon, which wasn't even paying to be there, but I paid to get in. And so I'm walking around, and back then they had a Saturday morning TV show, so I can't tell you how many kids were being dragged around by their parents that had seen me go, ooh, it's Bodie Lee from Photon, it's Bodie Lee. No. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just a Photon warrior. Here, kid, have a flyer. Make your parents drag you here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I ran out of flyers, never got kicked out, didn't get in trouble, and our uh, our business did improve. So that that for me was very enjoyable. Plus, here I am walking around in the photon pod at a convention. You got people with all their costumes that they put together, cloth, tin foil, stuff like that. You get the occasional person who knows how to work latex back then. Here I am mm-hmm. in you know the the big photon helmet with lights on it that's all plastics and everything um i've got the the chest piece that's also got leds in it i've got the gun shoved in one pocket um and this huge heavy 18 pound nicad battery belt around me uh-huh and a black jumpsuit underneath with a photon logo embroidered on it that that was a that was a heck of a lot of fun because it it was combining two of my favorite hobbies. I mean, the whole photon thing on the one side and the whole, you know, cosplay wasn't called cosplay then, but, you know, getting dressed up and going to conventions was something that they did. So here I am cosplaying back in 1987-88 by borrowing what I found out later was $1,200 worth of equipment. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And it's a good thing you didn't know probably in the moment, right? Oh, yeah. I would have been a lot more nervous. Um, so this, this gets back to a, a root question that, you know, uh, I certainly find that one of the motivations I have for costuming is the wish fulfillment factor of mm-hmm. portraying these characters that, uh, generally speaking, I, I really loved as a kid, um, whether it be the doctor or, or Captain Marvel or Superman or something. And I can tell you that a, a number of these were costumes in some fashion I put together as a child, even though of course they aren't nearly the costumes I have now, but that's where the seed is sown. And um, there's that there's the idea of portraying the character because you, you want to be him, but you also want to represent that character and do him justice. And, uh, and in addition to that, you also had the reinforcement when you did Photon. People accepted you. People were, oh my gosh, people were freaking out. And you had that, you know, mm-hmm. uh, support. You had that feedback. So, I mean, is that, I mean, is that the same reason you, you would say that you really started down this path? Because that's what it sounds like. Truth be told, I... I want to believe that, you know, there is either an afterlife or that we get a repeat, but I'm treating this life like this is it. And I'm going to try and enjoy as much as I can as possible. So I like to try new things. I like to try different things. If, you know, a large group of people look at a small group of people and say, wow, they're weird. I want to go see what makes that small group of people group like that. What makes them do that? I've found that 
when you go into such a group, if you go in there open-minded and honest, you tend to get accepted. And when you get accepted, you start to learn not only more about those people, but you learn more about yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the, one of the things that I like to point out to people is that I'm a huge Doctor Who fan. I am a screamingly huge Doctor Who fan. I know. <laughs> I don't watch the show as a rerun all that frequently. I have several episodes on DVD. In fact, I've got actually, I'd say about two-thirds of what's been released on either DVD or Blu-ray. And I don't watch them over and over and over and over and over. I, in fact, there's very few of them that fit that bill, and usually those are like a, a rainy day, head-cold prescription kind of thing, where, you know, I'm feeling lousy today. I really could use Pyramids of Mars right now, you know, that kind of thing. I find, I'm sorry to cut you I, I find Doctor Who is great uh, visual comfort food, um, and, yeah. and I've used it in a similar fashion, and I think it just helps with the warm fuzzies. Yeah, but um, you know, Doctor Who is sort of the ultimate childhood fantasy. I mean, it, it's it's kind of a, a mix of like Peter Pan with a little bit of rock and roll and a whole bunch of sci-fi all thrown into it. I mean, you've got you've got <laughs> the TARDIS, which is the ultimate secret clubhouse. You've got essentially a door that opens onto an infinite realm beyond it of all these secrets that so few have seen and so many more just pass by and everybody's got that little hidden place you know in the movie fight club where part of the therapy that the narrator is going through is he's in his cave you know Mm -hmm. and he sees a spirit animal which in his case is a penguin which is the animal that blends into all the other animals when it's with the other penguins big running joke there but right. the whole idea of the cave the secret place the 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 private place where you can go to that's yours the tardis is sort of that ultimate expression of it to me mm-hmm. and then there's the doctor who is the man for every mood every situation he is the ultimate hero he is the ultimate um, one who will sacrifice. One of Chris Eccleston's lines I thought was fantastic, where he said, uh, in 900 years of time and space travel, I've never met anyone who wasn't special. goes back to integrating with uh, the individual groups that I was talking about before. But dressing up as eight, or just generally hanging out with Doctor Who cosplayers or any cosplayers, you know, it, it's, it's that shared moment. It's that, that part that is inside that is part of our eternal childhood is part of our eternal need to have that place to go well cosplayers and rennies and other groups along those lines are the ones who are willing to congregate and make that secret place part of the outside world for a little while and dress appropriately when they go and just as you say bring it to life Mm mm-hmm um, no, no, I, I mean, I, I think we're along the same lines, but I think you said it much better than me. Um, so, uh, touching briefly, uh, would you say that, that Han Solo is what you consider your first costume or the photon or, or did we miss this? Um, 
Han Solo was definitely the, the first costume that I had decided on, but I didn't make much of it. I mean, like I said, I had the pants, we bought the shirt, my mom made the vest, which is just three pieces of fabric sewn together the right way, you know, mm-hmm. the, the gun was a toy, for making an actual costume from research, from scratch, from thin air. I've done throw-togethers where, like, several, a large amount of the garb that I use for Renaissance Festival is purchased for the most part. So I can't really say that, you know, I've caused any of that to come to be. Mm -hmm. The suit of armor is a different story because that has to be custom-made. Right. And most of that was made specifically to my designs. Sure. Um, And the first costume that I feel like I had my strongest hand in, though, uh, when it came to bringing it about was was eight, um, the eighth Doctor's costume. And the reason why I'm so attracted to, as uh, Paul McGann put it, the George Lazenby of the incarnation of the Doctor, <laughs> um, is, all right, a funny story to put the point across the same way I put it across to several of my friends. Um, I have a large number of friends who are casual Doctor Who fans. They consider themselves just sci-fi in general, Doctor Who, part of it, not separate. Gotcha. Um, Several of the BBC Eighth Doctor novels came out, and they had a series of them where the Doctor, the Eighth Doctor, has completely lost his memory, is trapped on Earth for a period of 120 years, starting in the late 1890s, and... um, one of the uh, the books from that cycle was early on when the doctor was still trying to figure himself out, but there there were a lot of moments in there that the more I read it, the more I stopped seeing Paul McGann in the role and just started realizing that you know that's how I'd react, that's what I'd say, and it's not so much that you know I want to be Paul McGann's version of the doctor. I just found so many similarities in how the character is written how the character reacts to situations to real-world examples of my own life. So it just made me more attracted to the character. You know, it's like having a um, meeting a friend and realizing that you guys have been just narrowly missing each other in the same circles for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to see if this was hopeful narcissism or whether this was an accurate observation. So I took the books and I gave them to a friend of mine who... He's known for two things when it comes to our friendship. Absolute honesty and being a complete jerk about being absolutely honest. I got those. I know. Oh, yeah. They're, they're the best sounding boards you can have. Hey, does this have a look good on me? No, it looks like crap. Oh, thanks. Okay, i got to go back to the drawing board now. You know. Right, right. Um, so I, I handed this book. I said, look, do me a favor. you got to train ride back and forth to work just like I do. Read this. Tell me what you think. That's all I said. So... He says, all right, I might get it back to you in a month. I don't know. It depends on how motivated I am to read it. He calls me up two days later. He's like, okay, jerk. I want the rest of the series. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He's like, I blew a sick day today to read the last two-thirds of this book. I could not put it down. I didn't even sleep last night. Where's the rest of it? All right. So I gave him the entire cycle. About halfway through, he, he calls me up. He's like, dude. I'm on my lunch hour, I'm reading book X, and um, you want me to read this because you know the author. No, I don't know the author. Why? <laughs> Dude, the main character's you. 
(laughs) (laughs) No, really. Come on. It's like, no, 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 no. Like, right here, I'm reading this. I'm like, dude, I hear your voice. And he reads something out, and I remember that particular moment in the book, and just all of a sudden, I felt justified. I said, all right, now I got to ask you, man. You've known me for a long time, even before the 1996 movie happened. How much do you now realize why I like this character? He's like, this isn't the character, dude. This is you. (laughs) (laughs) And so he finished the cycle about a book and a half ahead of his wife finishing the cycle. He talked about it so much, she picked up the first book. Nice. Read them all. Nice. Gave them back to me. My wife snapped them up and read them. And then they had an intervention where the three of them sat me down and said, all right, we need to know how much of this is you trying to act like this character and how much of this is just coincidence. I said, um, except for occasionally quoting something from one of the books or the movie, the rest of it's just kind of, you know, happenstance, kind of coincidence. So, you know, I, I had three outside opinions saying that, yeah, the personality type the way the character's portrayed, his almost childish love of life, his wanting to see the good in everybody, and his inability to sit down when a situation genuinely needed rectification. Mm-hmm. That's all me. <laughs> so I, just because of the coincidences of the core of the eighth incarnation being close to how my actual personality had evolved over the 26 years before the movie came out and the, all the years ever since, you know, I just feel comfortable dressing in those clothes. I feel comfortable falling into that character. And the comfort is also kind of a reassurance in that aspects of myself that I always felt were positive aspects are reinforced by being portrayed in heroic fiction. The ultimate in character identification. Or at least some sort of weird narcissism, I guess. <laughs> I suppose, but, you know, I mean, it, it. no, it's he exemplifies qualities that, you know, you clearly value and you carry forth in your daily life, and that shows with your friends and their reactions. And it's uh, a little more intertwined, I'd say. I mean, I, I aspire to try to be more like my heroes, but I know I'm not. I wish mm-hmm. I could be, but it's, I think that's great that, you know, you're, uh, you're kind of living it day to day. Well, I try. <laughs> Trust <laughs> as, me. As a parent of a child who's about to turn four and someone who's been happily married for almost 10 years and someone who's been working in the same career field for almost 20, it ain't always easy. <laughs> <laughs> I know, life throws its curveballs. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know how many members of the listening audience have listened to Big Finish's Eighth Doctor Adventures, but there's a climactic moment in the last story of the Season 4 cycle where the Doctor so completely loses it on one of the other characters. McGann has that beautiful rasp that comes into his voice when he screams, especially when he's portraying a character who is extremely angry. And this moment, he had that. And I just froze. I mean, I I had to pause my iPod in that second because I realized that, okay, me getting angry with myself for my son 
getting on my last nerve or one of my coworkers getting on my last nerve and like grinding my teeth and getting to that point it's part of the complete picture i mean it's just been portrayed in fiction here and the whole idea of any type of fiction is to hold up a mirror to reality mm-hmm. once again it's 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 a type of reinforcement i mean a lot of people look to cosplay characters for one reason or another um physical resemblance i can't tell you how many young ladies i've met on the cosplay scene that play characters because they have a similar build or a similar facial structure or want that build or facial structure and that is a motivation towards trying to improve themselves in that fashion sure nothing wrong with good casting yeah yeah um or uh, people who either want to accentuate an aspect of their personality by trying to play it up um you know, Darth Vader. This is actually something I was thinking about when we first talked about this in email. One of the aspects of Darth Vader that when you costume him has to be right. Now, I've not played Darth Vader, but I know several various members of the Darth Vader costumer community. One thing that's got to be dead on is the cape. And the reason for that is the cape is one of the most important physical aspects of Vader's portrayal. You know, everybody used to joke when the Matrix films came out that Neo's coat needed an Oscar for its own performance. But <laughs> sorry, <laughs> Vader, one of the least subtle characters on the surface, basically he is supposed to be a dark mystery, he's supposed to be brutality, he is supposed to be intimidation, which is why he's supposed to be seven feet tall and built like a linebacker, and his breathing precedes him into the room which is a big nod to several of the older horror films, like in Vincent Price back in the day. How many times where before even the dramatic music would come in, you'd have the people figuring, okay, we're alone, finally, we can relax. And they realize that their breathing isn't the only breathing in the shadowy room. Exactly. No, no, those are all really good points. Vader is supposed to be constantly enveloped, bordering on crushed by shadow. And what better a mobile shadow than a lightweight fabric voluminous cape that also has a semi-heavy hem at the bottom so that way as you walk, the lightweight of the fabric pulls it outward to create this voluminous shadow, but the weight of the hem at the bottom keeps it from flowing too freely, which shows restraint, which is the character once again. There's so many aspects of character that go into costuming. Oh. It's one of the other things that always fascinates me about reading about cosplayers who just put so much into what even should be a simple costume. Mm-hmm. No, I completely agree. Uh, there, there's a lot of uh, simple uh, telling a story, telling a story of that character in the costume. Uh, and whether that is uh, even as simple as a background player um, or, you know, an easy costume, as you say, uh, you know, uh, I have a friend who does vintage costuming and these aren't even specific characters from fiction, but every time he puts together something from the twenties or the thirties, he's always trying to tell a story with this character that he's putting together. You know, he's not just trying to slap any old pieces together that are vintage and that kind of thinking, I think really helps to make it all a, a nice whole and sell it. Bob, I'm smiling. Ask me why. Uh, you do vintage wear as well? I do steampunk. Oh, cool. Why don't you tell me about that? is an aspect of vintage wear, and the whole idea of steampunk, because there's very little established 
steampunk material, and I'm probably going to get hate mail for having said that because there's probably volumes of it out there I don't know about. But you know, you've got the classic stuff. You've got the H.G. Wells writings. You know, you've got the early fiction. Even Mark Twain wrote a time travel story. So you've got stuff from that period that you can base off of. And there's been so many elements of the steampunk world coming to popularity. I mean, look at the two Sherlock Holmes films that have come about. Yeah. You know, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, another steampunk film. Uh, there was a Three Musketeers film recently, which was, even though it was much earlier, was done in a steampunky style. You see these things happening now. But because you don't have Star Trek with very specific, rigid costuming where it's all entirely detailed. You don't have Star Wars where you have all these passionate fans who get into like practically beating each other into the ICU over the most minute details of a particular prop that showed up for three seconds. Mm -hmm. You don't have Doctor Who which not only has a rich history but also has had almost its entire surviving props and costuming lot auctioned off to museums and collectors, so many of whom have websites saying, hi, I own this and you don't, ha but here's the details. But steampunk, you're creating so much of it on your own. Now, admittedly, I cheat. I wear my ape costume to the steampunk conventions Aha. and fit right in because right. it's the time period. And ape's costume, even though in the dialogue, you know, they, they dumbed it down for the Americans, where it's supposed to be one of Wyatt Earp's stage costumes. No. Mm -hmm. The whole idea was Jules Verne. Pure Jules Verne. Look at, the, look at the TARDIS console room. Wood. Brass everywhere. Oh, yeah. The console itself. Mm -hmm. Clawfoot bottom. Round openings, steel girders holding up part of it. Can you get any more steampunk than that? Oh no, yeah. It actually echoes back to the season 14 console room, which was also a bit steampunk, so I completely see what you're talking about. Now, I do make a couple of uh, minor alterations. Like, if I'm doing a steampunk convention, I'll bring um, one of my other sonic screwdrivers from my collection, the, uh, the Teletran-designed sonic screwdriver, which has a brass cog core and a clear section, uh, has a black grip handle, so it does look a bit more along the lines of the steampunky view. But other than that, I have to make almost no changes to my eight costume to fit right in with a steampunk group. Now, how how much would you say is it important in a in a context like that? I know you cheat and do the eight, but uh, is it important to do an original costume versus recreation? And is there you know a, a greater you know respect for one versus the other? Do you think it is very important in the steampunk world of cosplay to make sure that your costume tells your character's story better than if you typed it up and safety pinned it to your sleeve. Whether you are playing a blacksmith gizmo genius, playing a airship pirate captain, playing a traditional English adventurer with a steampunk twist, playing a lady of high court, playing no matter what it is, the character has to have a costume that explains it right off the top. Mm -hmm. And some of the most amazing creativity of it is that because the whole steampunk cosplay movement is only defined by probably about four sentences. It's got to look like it came from between 1890 and 1910. 
it's got to look like it came from one of the cultures that the fiction that we know of came from that time period. Right. It's got to be wearable in such a way that it would make sense to have come from a much more open-minded, open-scienced time period. And it's also got to show off a rugged individuality because the whole idea of the steampunkers is the punk core. And the whole core of punk is to look at popular society. If you're American, raise your middle finger. If you're of uh, the Isles, raise your two fingers and let them know to sod off because we're doing our own thing. And the beauty of it with having such an open playing field uh, for the steampunkers especially is some of the most amazing creativity that goes into it. If you have anime cosplayers that are doing specific characters or based on specific characters, they've got to try and keep it close enough to keep it identical, uh, identifiable. Excuse me. If you're doing Star Trek, Star Wars, or Doctor Who, if you can't identify which character, which incarnation, which piece of equipment, you miss the point. Steampunk. You know, sometimes all you really need is a leather vest and a handlebar mustache, and from there, you can work whatever magic you want. Yeah, no, you're right. And there's a, uh, one of the biggest steam can steampunk conventions in the U.S. happens, thankfully, in the town over from me, so I get to go see that, which is the Steampunk World's Fair. And the creativity that I have seen people put into their costumes, there are people who will go so far as to not just hot glue a bunch of cogs and springs onto stuff, but will actually go in there and figure out, okay, if I want to create what appears to be a steam pressure powered clockwork replacement arm, what would I need to do to make it do things? And I've seen someone who had what appeared to be strapped around uh, their actual arm what appeared to be a prosthetic that had a whole bunch of interesting surface details. So I complimented him on it, at which point he smiled, raised his arm, and proceeded to activate some of the gizmos in there. And he had so many spring-loaded uh, and gear-powered items, he had gone so far as to hide an aerosol can in there to make it look like it was venting steam during certain movements. The amazing level of creativity that these people have for both costuming and mechanical engineering never ceases to amaze me. And you see that aspect in almost any field of cosplay, because cosplay requires ridiculous amounts of research, a certain skill set which includes being able to take something, reimagine it, and break it down to the individual parts and then put it back together so it fits you. Right. And, and then the ability to pull it off by actually wearing it and being in the character. So you're saying that it's almost a triple set of, of broad set skills. I mean, obviously you can get in nitty-gritty and talk sewing or talk foam construction or, or talk electronics, depending on how you know far down the road you want to go. But... Mechanical engineering, yes. CNC um, uh, work. I mean, let's, let's take it back to Doctor Who for a minute. Sonic screwdrivers. The sonic screwdriver replicas that we own whether they are meant to be screen accurate, whether they are meant to be semi-screen accurate, or whether they are meant to be custom. The amount of metal work and engineering design that goes into them 
Jess the McGann one, which has a spring-loaded pop-up head. Well, the research had to be done to get the details on it as accurate to the screen model as possible. And that includes the brass ring that few people realized was there on the handle. Uh, then you have to design the internals to accommodate a locking mechanism and a spring. Then the design has to be tested with a prototype, and then it can go to manufacture. Well, and, yeah, I mean, essentially, you're you're having to redesign it from scratch, aren't you? I mean, I know you did a lot of research on this, um, which helped a lot with the, the rust run that recently happened last year, which, thank you again, by the way, for that. Um, sure. The slight screwdriver is my personal addiction. That That is my the prop. Um, like I said, I do the Eighth Doctor because the personality fits. I love the costume, and I found out I'm able to cross-platform with it between my cosplay interests, my sci-fi interests, my steampunk interests, and also, believe it or not, I have worn the Eighth Doctor costume to a couple of Renaissance festivals and been recognized immediately. I find that's a fandom that crosses over pretty easily, actually. Uh, Rennies? Yeah, we love everything. <laughs> Especially booze and hanging out in funny clothing. Uh, but, yeah, but that, that's a lot of conventions. Come on. <laughs> yeah. but, you know, showing you just some of these props, the amount of research that goes into getting them as accurate as possible, you're either working with screen caps or you're working with a few people that might have some connections. Now, here's, here's another one in my collection. This is a replica of the tricorder from Voyager. Now, unfortunately, the battery in this thing is dead. Otherwise, it would light up and make sounds. Now, this particular one, which predates the, uh, um, the MFX run, predates the, uh, the other various companies who had made runs of these, um, this was actually made while the show was still in production the molds became available. Someone made several out of the actual mold and the person that was making the circuit boards for them was not contractually obligated to not make the circuit boards for anyone else. Uh -huh. So this is as accurate to the show prop as you can get because several of the components of it came from the exact same origin points as the show. Now in that case that's a lucky strike and there are people that have access to things like that. And that's where we lose the signal for this week's episode. Be back here next time for the second half of my chat with Mr. Ron Daniels, where we'll continue talking about props and Doctor Who and all kinds of good stuff. If you have any questions, please go to www.costumestationzero.com, and I'll be happy to answer them. Thank you much for listening, and we'll be back here next time on Costume Station Zero. 